You are listening to Concrete Conversations, an informative podcast brought to you by the Concrete Masonry Association of Australia. We represent the concrete masonry and segmental paving manufacturers in Australia. Our podcast will discuss technical information and case studies with some special guests from our industry. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of the Concrete Masonry Association of Australia. On today's podcast, I'm welcoming one of my favourite passionate paver people in the world. That's a lot of alliteration for Andrew King, who is the coordinator of engineering services for the city of West Torrens. Welcome back, Andrew. Hello, glad to be here. Andrew, we talk a lot about pavers and a lot about how we can make things a little bit better. And today's podcast is really going to focus on maybe advancing the adoption of better proactive outcomes for pavers in local government areas. So thank you again for coming back. This is fine. Thank you for the coffee. I thought that we'd start off last time we talked about why you chose engineering as a profession. And I think even just walking around this morning with you to all the projects that you've been involved in, I'm really curious to know what continues to drive you around best practice in this particular area. That's a good question. I think something else I landed on with a realisation, it was probably always there, but sometimes we don't realise what's bouncing around the back of our heads sort of coined a bit of a phrase that as a local government engineer, we're engineering the spaces that everyone lives in. And to an extent, there's, you know, when you delve into a bit, we're leaving a bit of a legacy around for the communities that we serve. And there were several different areas that I'm trying to cut fingers in pies or trying to drive best practice. Sort of started to land on, you know, bring a long story short, the generational legacy that we're leaving, which then made me bring, and, you know, great for a podcast, but here is a rationale. There's a photo. Now, I know that no one else is going to see that, which is fine. Got a good linkage for this. That's our little fella on the left and my nephew, about one and seven. Mm, now, beautiful. everyone has, everyone else can take themselves. To, they, they know a young one. Mm. Everyone has a young one in their life. I'm of an age and era where I know everyone was doing, you know, lived through the 2020 visions. Well, that was that thing off in the future, the 2020 visions, which... And now we're, we're here. <laughs> we're, we're there and we're past it. Yeah. South Australia's got a 30-year plan, which is 10 years old. Yeah. So that's well down the journey. You talk about some of the climate stuff and the criticalness of a 2050 date. That's 30 years away. Mm. So our little fella is just going to be in his 30 when we hit 2050. Mm. Nephew's going to be in his mid-30s. Mid it's like, what... Are we leaving them with what we're doing? Mm. And with so many of the things that we talked about previously with the, our cooling our urban environments, our streets, you know, development, wiping out a lot of the greenery and play space and on private land and the importance that that then moves onto the public land. Mm. It really then says, well, I've got to pull my finger out and make sure that we're doing this with that future vision, the, mm. the whole Xerox what's there, you know, a bit of concrete footpaths broken, rip it out, put it back. Mm. The road needs resealing, rip it up, put it back. That's clockwork, but how is that servicing the world that I want to leave for these guys? That's the thing that sort of landed. It probably was always there to an extent. You realised it, mm. but when you actually stop and think about it and bring it, and I guess 
you know, being a senior engineer in local government, I've got the ability of influencing that. And so it was bringing it back to a lot of things with climate. I think a lot of the reason there's problem with climate change adoption and advancement is that it's such a massive subject that most of us feel disconnected from being able to make any change to it. Yes, that's a so really good point. Bring mm. the world back to what you have influence on and what you can change for the better mm. and the standard practices of the way things are done, changing those for the better. That's where we should get our claws into. And so that's not just your senior engineers in a council. That expands to your audience of designers, consultants. And that's why, you know, challenge out to a consultant. If, if I'm ever your client and I'm doing something that's not forward thinking, pull me up on it, call me out on it and challenge you to ask the question of any of your clients to sort of push them to sort of say, should we be doing this better? And, you know, I think it's such an important aspect and I do feel that this generation is quite and rightly so critical and I think there's now this added pressure around the humiliation of being held to account you know my own 10 year old daughter says you know mum it's not like we can move to another planet we've got to look after the one we've got and it's such simple focus but I think for a lot of us we forget that. And, you know, we, we've copped a lot of criticism, our generation and the one obviously older than us, because there hasn't been that foresight. And I think there's that under, we want to make things better, but we also, I think, want to be judged by the generations that are coming through that we did make an effort. Whereas I think at the moment, they don't think we have. No, we've been... <laughs> Yeah, lucky. Yeah, I think I think it was a lucky generation. I've just clocked over fifty, but I'm in the lucky generation where life has been easy enough through my lifespan with regards to the economies and world conditions and everything else mm -hmm. like that. And at the moment, yeah, there's an element of things going downhill. And interest in, rate rise, the first in ten mm -hmm, years, yeah. you know, yeah. But you know, those sort of things. And again, I think that's why it's really important to bring it back to what we can impact yes. and influence, and the parts we can all play. I come from a, I think I mentioned last time predominantly a water background that's where I started pushing your stormwater background a water background started pushing advancement best practice in that field which is now sort of just permeated across other areas of influence and the simple thing is, is like 80% of the plastic pollution that gets out into oceans gets there via our stormwater yeah and it's like that's completely in the glamour of our control in local government yeah and, and I think sorry to interrupt the no-brainer that Melissa from Water Sensitive SA said if we captured all the runoff that would be all that we needed and it may not be quite as simple as that, but it actually is almost even a little bit simpler than that mm. in that most of the pollution is in what's called the first flush rainfall. And if you think about a road, it hasn't rained for a couple of weeks. Oils, greases that build up on the road, there's been nothing to wash them off. Mm. The leaf litter's just blown to the curb. There's nothing to move that away. The chip packets and the drink containers mm. are just sat in the curb. There's been nothing to move that away. When it rains, the first bit of rain picks all that up and moves it along. Mm. Now, you know, to pull it back to permeable pavers or bring it back to subject, the use of permeable pavers in road environments is a great way, if that's your mechanism for picking up and collecting water, your primary mechanism, leaf litter, chip packets and drink containers, they won't go into a permeable paver. Yeah. You can get them to sit and hold somewhere where they're easier to pick up. But the water that washes off the road that's got all the oils and greases, you know, one of my aha moment points, which everyone sees but no one sees, is if I can put it in people's head and hopefully wherever someone's listening to this, just started raining for the first time in a couple of weeks. Look at the road and you'll see that slick. You'll see the, the rainbow bubbles and the, the frothy white edges and the blackness of it. That's all pollution. That's all really nasty stuff. If that washes off into permeable pavers, that all gets bound up in the pavers and, and absorbed, the, and, absorbed yep. and, the, and the biological processes in the pavers. 
So the water that then comes out the bottom end of the pavers if it drains away is substantially cleaner. Now, if we don't do that, if it just goes to the curb, it just goes to a pit, it just goes to a pipe, it just goes to a creek, that's the stuff that gets in there and hurts all the vegetation, hurts all the little fishies. Yeah. And that's been the main driver when you look at places like North America. I mean, that's legislation from the top has been around. This is going to help your stormwater and your pollution at the same time. So just, Andrew, taking us now into that local approach, I thought that we could do a little bit of investigation and talk about the Red River Gum Project. And then we can sort of go into a little bit more about what we can do individually and collectively to sort of bring about a whole system of change. So let's start with the Red River Gum Project, if we could just talk about the context of that. We're lucky... It's an old river bank. The River Torrens and Adelaide never made it out to the ocean pre-settlement, pre-establishment of a city here. It all sort of filled out in the swamp and up around that area in Lockleys. There's still some old remnant gum trees. The oldest photo we have is from 1920, I think, and you can clearly see there's river gum and there's like three or four of them in a little stand. Uh, And they ended up in a road as the area was carved up, and one of which really is in the road (laughs) with the way that everything's been formed. And over generations of urban development and urban growth in the area, urban establishment, it's just ended up with concrete curbing around it and bitumen laid up to the edge of it because that's where the focus was. The centric focus was pave the world and not much thought about trees. It's there, it kind of still survived, but it was literally paved right up to the trunk edge. Wow. And I don't know how many times that road has been reworked over the years, but at least a couple of times the same thing's always been done. And good on the red gums, they're still there, they were still growing. But you've got chronic conflict with the bitumen and the curbing that have gone down, which is obvious because the tree keeps growing. Mm. So when it came up this time around for a rework, we sort of were able to say, let's do it better, both for the infrastructure and also for the tree. And we're lucky it wasn't a high volume road and we had some room to play with. So we were able to put a single lane road through, but then literally under the entire footprint of or the drip line of these trees, we're able to permeable pave from road edge to road edge, the entire section of road through there. The formation, the, the pavement design underneath of the permeable helped in being easier to build around the existing roots of the trees rather than having to worry about cutting roots, Mm. which is what you'd normally do if the roots were in the road pavement. You want to leave an old tree like that alone. I wouldn't want to be fiddling around with my grandpa too much. So, Andrew, if we look at a whole system of change, then just talk us through a little bit around some of the, I don't want to be ironic and use speed humps, but I'm going to, that would normally come up in a project like this. You just mentioned one, obviously, the cutting of the roots. But how did you navigate those traditional speed humps and how can we help everyone else do the same thing? So I think with that particular project, it was the groundwork that was already laid. Mm -hmm. I think I used last time the the analogy of the rolling stone, which I think is a great analogy with these sort of things. You break those barriers or those speed humps little bits at a time. And the more that everyone gets comfortable in doing those things, the easier it is to do next time. Until you, And realistically, I think most things, and I think local government is one of those, it's a, it's a cycle. It's like you do things a few times, it becomes habit. You can then embed it mm. into regular process. And that can be both the, the good and the bad because that's how you bring around change, organisational change or cultural change in organisation is through that process. But at the same time, that's why we get stuck in some of those old ways is because they were built into habit and no one's ever challenged those habits. And there's that inertia, I guess. What's the, the key areas of inertia around a project like this that you would identify? 
I think the always looking out for opportunities. Mm-hmm. So our council is one that prides itself on being pretty progressive with water sensitive urban design and the adoption of water sensitive urban design in our projects. A lot of that in roadscape environments, you know, the, the key areas we deliver that in roadscape environments or in our own facilities like our, our sports centres and, and community centres and surrounds are either through the use of rain gardens or permeable pavers, are the key deliverable areas. We've got to a point now where doesn't matter whether it's those people that are passionate about those things or the champions of those things that are sort of putting their hand up and saying, hey, we need to look at involving these in the project. Because the organisations become more broadly aware and the staff across the organisation more broadly aware that we're a water-sensitive city, most of the project delivery people, as they're concepting a project, are saying, what are the water-sensitive elements that have opportunity in this project? Here's a community centre with a car park. Car parks are no-brainers. Rain gardens, permeable pavers, pick your poison type thing. It doesn't need to be driven. The champion of water sensitive urban design doesn't need to see the project and say, hey, look, there's an opportunity there. And the problem with that process sometimes is that they might not see it until it's two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through a design. Mm. So you run that tack-on factor. And quite often if you tack something on afterwards, not only are you wearing some costs or compromise of design because it's later in the process, but you lose that integrated benefit. If it's in upfront, then it just flows into the project from day one or from early concept and just better chance of it sitting seamlessly in an end design. Mm. So I think that change of culture in an organisation or way of thinking about things, whether it be water sensitive urban design, whether it be the materials being used for footpaths, concrete versus bit versus pavers, the aesthetics of those footpaths, all those things sort of come from that. They have an initial Mm. step in, but then it's about getting it into the day-to-day practice. So then, Andrew, if we were just to take, I think, sort of to recap and then round off, just step by step, so through the Red River Gum Project, you mentioned part of it was advantageous because the sub-work had been done. So there was a decision early on not to cut any of the routes? So there was a realisation that going to a permeable solution meant that one of the benefits of not using conventional pavement is that we didn't need to worry about that interference with the root system Mm -hmm. as much and that that was just going to be beneficial for the tree. So that was just another tick in the box of why it would be good to use permeable rather than conventional pavement. Mm So many boxes, you know, as soon as you open your eyes to look at it, the boxes that make permeable pavers better to use in that scenario than conventional bitumen. There wasn't a bitumen top box to tick, I don't think. Right. Yeah, because you've got the additional moisture and trees need water. Mm -hmm. Radical comment. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, the permeable pavers let that water in. Yeah. Trees need to breathe as well. Didn't know that many years ago. You live and learn. Mm -hmm. And the permeable pavers let that occur. Sealing bitumen right up to the trunk of the tree prevents both those things from happening. And as long as you get over the misnomer, which several people have spoken about, that paved roads are more expensive than bitumen roads, as soon as you sort of identify that for the rubbish that it is, if you look at it in a whole of life cycle cost, then yeah, that's the only thing that some people can rely on. It's simpler and easier and cheaper to put in bitumen. Well, if you've got the right contractors, it's not necessarily simpler and easier. And if you understand the whole life cycle, it's not cheaper. Yep. And so if we were to take this to be a little bit more personable and with what you were saying before about the things that we can control, one of the things you obviously get with council is through big developments and renovations is just people's driveways. So maybe let's talk a little bit about that because that's something that we could all maybe concentrate on in our own patch. Yeah. So one of the things I see from a development perspective and when we talk about development side of things, 
Development to me is a big area where we can get societal improvement again in those areas that there's a lot of it that goes on and around and it will always be going on and around. And you know, the argument between what's legislation and what's industry driven and we can't always rely on legislation to get us over the line. It's always sort of catching up and there's always those pressures back on it. But I, th- I think the way I've sort of broken it down, I reckon that there's a massive middle and then you've got a small top end and a small bottom end. Mm-hmm. The top end are people out in industry or customers or developers or clients that are super passionate about something and they're always going to go above and beyond in that particular area, mm-hmm. whether it be the resident that installs 30,000 litres rainwater tank or the resident who wants a super specky brick paved pattern in their driveway. Mm-hmm. They're going to land there and they're going to deliver excellence and beyond. But that's only a small percentage off the top. The bit off the bottom, which I think we spend too much time worrying about, is probably that 10 or 15% of people that, for whatever reason, aren't going to be interested in best practice. And it doesn't matter how you legislate them. It doesn't matter how you try to lead them to water. They won't be drinking your Kool-Aid. Pardon the pun. (laughs) Yes. And I think putting a lot of effort into those is potentially wasted effort for reward. Yes. They're always going to find a loophole. They're always going to find a way out. They're potentially that's going to include those people that have one thing on a plan. They're just going to do something completely different because they they feel it's cheaper or easier or better for them Mm. in some way or whatever their driver is. But in the middle, you've got 70, 80% of developments where they don't realistically don't care what the driveway is to a great extent. Mm. They just want a clean planning process, simple planning process, quick planning process, cost appropriate implementation, execution and out the door. Mm. So their driver is all about that simplicity and cost compatible, cost appropriate. And I think that's where we should drop our efforts because that's also that 70, 80% of the middle. If we can get that performing well, it doesn't really matter that 10 or 15% is not there. You drive around the roads, there's people getting speeding tickets all the time. It's like you're always going to have that percentage that you just can't control and get to oh, do the right Oh, eventually thing. they will come on board maybe. Maybe, maybe not, but I think there's an element of wasted energy on them. Mm. And I think that's where as an industry, if we can, from the development perspective, provide them with already established standard details and follow it up with some demonstration of why it's not more expensive or why it's not harder to do permeable pavers than conventional pavers. It's just different not harder, mm-hmm. and support the industry that then goes and builds it to make sure that we've got people building them that know what they're doing rather than potentially getting a contractor going, yeah, I know how to do this, but bodging it and making the, you know, they'll throw the baby out with the bathwater. You get a, someone that doesn't build it right, suddenly the permeable pavers don't work argument comes up mm. where it's not necessarily a problem. Yeah, the problem wasn't that, it was the implementation or the poor design. So standard details alleviates poor design, working out some way to make sure that we can lead people to good implementers. Mm. The other thing I sort of noticed with development is that we need to make that information up front and through our industry rather than it being, you know, this is my belief, rather than it being part of the conversation of assessment because take something like a, a driveway most developers or applicants will realise if they show a standard driveway, whether it's concrete or bitumen or brick, realistically, they, they'll get a, that should give them a pass. Yeah. So if they put that on the plan from day one, they're not really expecting any pushback on that. And you try to deliver them the better solution whilst you're in the conversation of feedback of assessment of application, it sort of becomes, why do I have to change that? Mm. So you know, it's a harder process. It's like it's only going to cost them more to get a drafted. You know, it might not be a great amount, but it's, it'll cost them something more to get it drafted or to rejig the plans. It'll cost them in time, you know, another couple of weeks to turn around, 
going back to a drafter, sitting with the assessment authority for a couple of weeks whilst they now turn around and tick something off. So time is money on development. Mm. So I think the focus needs to be the beginning in before things are lodged. And we've, you know, from our council perspective, we've done that in some areas with development from a waterside background and, yep. and how we manage stormwater on developments. We've got some rainwater tank solutions that we've trained, for want of a better word. A lot of the usual suspect developers or consultants that service a reasonable number of developments in our council area where they know that if they put a certain tank solution on a house as it comes through in a development, then there is no checking. They don't need to do extra calculations, which is a cost saving and time saving for them. Mm. And they know they're not going to get any clarification questions back in that assessment process that are again just going to take more time or require a response. They just know it's going to hit at the council side, the assessment side, and get a tick. Mm. And I think that that's where the pavers and driveways we can learn a bit there. And I think that's what we've discussed about really simplifying and and trying to get a fact sheet, make it easy, make some standard pavements already certified here in Adelaide and and Greater South Australia. And And I think even defending the planning system and the the planning of state planning departments that own the code, there's the planning code here in SA. If we as an industry present something to them that has that justification about it's cost effective there's a much better chance they don't have the skill sets internally or the local subject knowledge to be developing these things Mm. but if they see something's well considered in development has multiple benefits and is again not going to get great pushback from the development industry they would then reflect that in later upgrades of the code it's much easier for them to adopt it and include it in later upgrades of the code mm. than if it's being relying on them to put something together, which understandably they don't know what they're talking about, they don't have the subject matter experts. Or, in. you know, if you've got those individual outliers that are coming up with these ideas. Mm. Well, Andrew, again, you've given us so many wonderful tips and I think we're actually going to close our season one with this podcast and I am excited to say that in season two we're actually going to be outlining some of these initiatives that we've heard from yourselves and from Water Sensitive South Australia and really looking at how we can work together and also just give a little bit more of a roadmap or a perfect pavement, pardon the pun, to ensure that it's really easy for people and for local government engineers and any landscape architect or engineer to really be able to implement some of these ideas. It's easier for them so they don't have to reinvent the wheel or the rolling stone. But thank you again for all of your insights. That's cool. Always happy to have a chat. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for ideas of what to talk about. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.